Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hello, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana And Jackson. welcome to the Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, let me tell you something. I missed rapping at you. I certainly enjoyed the Matt Continetti episode, and I think a lot of other people did, but I, I, I missed rapping at you. And we had like the biggest media, they all seem big to me, but we had like the biggest media week in a long time. Is it Mar-a-Lago that makes you say that or just, something else? Just the the scope. It, it feels like a lot of stuff is going down. And I think part of that is, and I don't know, maybe this sensation is only something that I that you have when you're in school and then again when you're a parent. But the the sands through the hourglass at the end of summer, it feels like a lot of outfits and families and individuals and, and news organizations, it's like, okay, summer's almost over. This is the last time that we can do stuff that people won't see. <laughs> this is like, we now we've got to get ready because it's going to get real in a couple of weeks. I feel that way. I think election season really going to start after Labor Day. Well, the what I've I've long wondered on this about, so in the, back in the old days, in the days of yore, in, as a person who started his journalistic career in the first three digits were 199, the, I can tell you that in the old days, and especially in West Virginia, Labor Day was the real kickoff and people didn't do much. I wonder now if people, it's so constant, the amount of political content is so constant and the, just this, the saturation bombing, if, if that still works as an inflection point, I guess for news organizations, it still does. I know, I know where well, I, the places I work that it, it is a factor because you got to pick sometime. In, in my head, it, in my head, it does. Should we get to, we, there's like so much that I just, you know, like we can dispense with the small talk. We're not oh. in person, so we don't have any like scones. You wound me, madam, but fine. By the way, oh, wait, I have okay. big news. I have okay. big news. Producer mm -hmm. Colin ate a muffin. What he, kind of muffin? Producer Colin, producer, blueberry. Good choice. Producer Colin like never eats or drinks in front of us. And so I kind of thought he was like a bionic man. But today I asked him if he wanted a muffin and he allowed me. Oh, to I think of him muffin. drinking nutrient rich, like Huel. Yeah. Like yeah, bone like, broth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like a, 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 a steaming <laughs> cup of Huel in the morning and then like some bone broth at lunch. And then just, you know, like a pack of Airheads. Yeah, Gorp. oh, well, Gorp, Gorp. that's, what is this, Christmas? No, Gorp. Gorp and then like <laughs> and then like a plain steak with steamed broccoli. Well, I would do that. Dinner. I I would definitely do that. But I, I think I think nutrient supplements come with some of his shirts, so that's probably the factor <laughs> here. Okay. Front page is like so obvious. There's only one item taking up the entire front page. It's basically like, you know, Trump and Mar-a-Lago raid. They just bought out an ad that got our whole front page. Chris, I I have to say I broke this down. You know, we have a little document that we use to prep the show. I broke down coverage of the raid into the left colon and the right colon. And my view is that the, the coverage was so stupid and it continues to be so stupid. But basically, 
no one knows anything about this raid. And the left's response was just, there were two responses. One was like, thou shalt not question the integrity of law enforcement. And the second was, you know, this is finally the thing that's going to land Trump behind bars. And the right's response was, we live in a third world country now. This is a banana republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a different well, well, first, I want, for, sense of where first, we land? I want to hear the amazing montage put together by nutrient-dense Colin Chicola. Let's take a listen. <laughs> we don't know where this will lead in legal terms. We don't know where this will lead in historic terms. We do not know where this will lead in terms of the behavior of the former president and his supporters. And that is a moment that is worth appreciating um, in terms of us being at a historical nexus. But if I'm if I were like Donald Trump's lawyer right now, and thank God I'm not, um, I would be advising my client to be telling my family I am looking at jail time and we should you know make plans accordingly. Watching uh, the criticisms of the right when it comes to investigations on the left, there's a there's a benefit of the doubt that they give to law enforcement and this idea of law and order that they don't give to themselves when they're under scrutiny. So all of a sudden it's political. But if it's a Democrat in the hot seat, it's about law and order. All of these excuses, Scott, coming from Republicans and they're shifting, they're evolving. They don't stand up to simple questioning. Yeah, I mean, some of these excuses are just patently ridiculous. And you know, we've seen this during the Trump years, you know, the shifting, you know, attempts to defend him at all costs. It's the die on every hill syndrome. You know, the problem with dying on every hill is that you wind up dead. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what all that extra nutrients do. That's that is how having a nutrient rich diet makes you a better producer. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you say. I will say this. The long lesson of the Trump administration for the press, one of the many long lessons, but I think a very significant one, the coverage of the Russia probe, the Mueller investigation, the coverage of the relating to his first impeachment all of those things, <clears throat> Democrats and some Republicans, but mostly Democrats, fed a steady diet of leaks to the press. I'm looking at you, Adam Schiff, but fed a steady diet of leaks to the press. By the time things were done, the way, the way I put it, and it's, this is much like with the Clinton impeachment, if everything that was known at the end, right, had been known in one fell swoop at the beginning, it would have been huge, but because it dribbed and drabbed out and because it was just a little drizzling of scandal over a long period of time, by the time you get to the point where there is the aha, it feels like less than that. And I want to say that this Justice Department seems less leaky than its two priors, and it seems like there is more discipline, certainly, than there was. Barr was okay, but the Trump administration was leaky itself. And the Obama, I mean, look, the, the, good, the good news for, for Merrick Garland is that the standard set in the, in the analogous time with Loretta Lynch and James Comey was so heinously bad, was so, was so a mix of arrogance and incompetence, the likes of which one seldom sees in high office that they've got a little advantage. But I do sense a different approach here, both from the Justice Department and from some Democrats around to not be as leaky this time around. And there is a little more patience. And I do think that's a different energy. couple thoughts. One is on the 
raid itself and the media coverage, you know, I'm struck by how little we actually know and that there was like real room for coverage on that. Like I was looking around for questions that Mm -hmm. I have had about it and for answers to those questions and couldn't find it. What I was finding was here's how Republicans are reacting and here's how Republicans are fueling violence. And here's what like Giuliani is saying that we're a, you know, banana Republic. I'm, I'm really curious actually, like how, how does it work? Like if Trump did declassify these documents, like what is, does a president have to go through a process to declassify documents. How does that work? Can he declassify everything? And then can a can his successor like actually say no, we're reclassifying those things? Like there are a lot of questions I have about the substance of this that I could not find answers to in the press, and it just struck me that there's there's a lot that we don't know and the media like filled this void with not with facts about this but with like stupid yes. takes and asininity <laughs> and on your there, there, thoughts about there's, justice- there's your title of this episode stupid takes, stupid and, asininity. takes and asininity i think, I think yeah. you already did it um, and it just strikes me that like we still don't know anything so there's no room for takes like we we know nothing about this really well i i i, I uh, operate in a space you know i've said many times before that i'm supposed to be the weatherman Right. Doing political analysis and political forecasting is supposed to be like, well, now we've talked about the news over to you, Hillbilly. What you know, what what's what is going to happen? And there's a little like farmer's almanac component to this stuff, because you're like, well, I don't know if the woolly worms turn hairy by the time it gets to be the 5th of October. Look out for a heavy winter, because obviously political analysis includes a lot of guesswork and assumptions. But what very often happens, and I call this the politicoification of everything, when an event occurs, even before we get to the question of what happened, the question is, how will this affect the next election? And in this case, people don't even want to talk about the next election. They want to talk about the election after that. They want to talk about the rep- the primary season in two years. And certainly, you and I'm not saying that it, it is, I, I'm fascinated by the, the effects of this on the Republican electorate. It's a huge question because at a moment where it seemed like maybe they were starting to get a little post-Trump, this makes it very hard for Trump's opponents, right? Because if you're going after Trump, you're doing the, you know, you're doing the dirty work of China Joe Biden and his banana Republic Justice Department if you're critical of Trump. So certainly it has its consequences. Hardest hit, Ron DeSantis. I'm not, I'm not disputing that it's not a worthwhile subject of analysis, but I agree with you 100%. On this stuff, we don't know. And we don't know what what this is about and what it fits into. And it's very hard in a news environment where you just eat, you eat like a cowboy, like we say, or I say just one thing at a time. There's only one story at a time. So this is a story where it's like, okay, we should have some really in-depth coverage of it as it happens. And then there should be some deep dives to answer the kind of questions that you have. And then it's like, okay, well, we'll let you know when we know, instead of just keeping reporters standing around at Mar-a-Lago saying, What's another story that we could possibly tell about this? And the easiest one is always to say, how will this affect the next election? Can I probe you a little bit on your take about the leakiness of the Justice Department? I just want to play devil's advocate. I think, let's say, 
it was obviously politically advantageous for the previous departments to for for let, let's say the FBI in or for the Mueller team to be leaky. They were leaking things to their advantage. For this Justice Department, you know, they're saying nothing about their investigation of Hunter Biden. Like what would they be leaking there to their advantage? It seems to me that that from the political political advantage standpoint, like they got to keep their mouth shut on that and say nothing. And then from the Trump investigation standpoint, unless like they really have something on Trump, what would they be leaking? So the Mueller leaking and whatever of it came from House Democrats and whatever of it came from inside Mueller's own team, I don't know, you know, some of it you can guess, some of it can't, so I don't even, I don't bother, was to their terrible, terrible disadvantage. It hurt them enormously. It mitigated the ultimate report because contradictory leaking. I mean, look, we have the, we have the, why, why do you think we have the most effulgent example of this in the Steele dossier, pushing it out, leaking it out doesn't let the case mature and the, it it eliminates the element of the haha and here it is and here's our report that's got all this stuff in it but there was no aha so i think it accomplished what they wanted because they had this story if you, for if, you know two three years of the trump presidency that like he's terrible they had the storyline that was all they needed there was no but it, aha but it ever didn't it didn't well i disagree with you about that but the the effect was to turn it from a big thing to just background noise that one thing goes into the other. The lesson that a lot of people took from the intense assault on Donald Trump and his presidency that took place while he was in power was that you can't kill him, right? (laughs) The guy... The guy is is unkillable because, of course, a lot of this is owed to Republicans standing with him, even when the even when in private they knew they shouldn't. And but that can also be part of the coverage problem because the what works best for Trump is to be a victim. Donald Trump is the the great avatar. He is the apotheosis of victim culture in America. And he and I've been so reminded in this response to the Clintons and how much the Trumps are like the Clintons in this stuff. Ethically dubious behavior, dogged by scandal. And whose fault is it? It's the media. It's the vast right wing conspiracy. It's never us. Right. It's never us. It's these other bad people who are coming to get us. And, you know, it's been 20 years, more than 20 years that the Democrats have been dragging the Clintons and their garbage around. And I think the Republicans may be in for a very similar experience with the Trumps. Chris, I I just realized we left an important topic off of our What's rundown that? here. So let's wing okay. it. Liz Cheney coverage. Oh, yeah. We are recording on Wednesday. This This won't come out till Friday, but Liz Cheney lost her primary yesterday, and we are awash in Liz Cheney takes, basically all about her grand political future. I saw so many tweets were like, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. What do we think of that? Look, I certainly, it's no fun to lose a race. It's no fun to lose a race like that. It's no fun to lose a race in front of the whole country while every while, while half of the country is jeering at you and throwing virtual cabbages at you, and the other half of the country is lionizing you 
it's not probably not a ton of fun. So I certainly feel bad for the Cheneys in that way. On the other hand, this was not a surprise. <laughs> this was not, this was, this was not, this was not a surprise. I assume she would do it over again the same way. And that this is just part of, this is, this is the price of poker. But look, the coverage of it was disproportionate because it, the event, it would have, look, if Liz Cheney had won, it would be a huge story. It would be giant. Now, part of this, I can tell you a little inside, a little inside stuff. I was just out in Wyoming and I can tell you that. Yeah, Chris, I was quite upset actually that I saw a leak out of your event in Wyoming from Robert Costa that was like, you know, Glenn Youngkin, potential Republican primary candidate. He's really blowing away donors. And I thought to myself, you know, speaking to AEI donors, and I thought to myself, why not freaking Chris Steyerwald, VP candidate? Like, why all this focus on Youngkin? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, as you know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about things that I don't talk about. The... Uh, <laughs> cannot talk about my potential oh well candidacy. no okay yes i i hereby declare but you know i'm running for president and you know what my my platform is it can fit on a bumper sticker it is shut the blank up dear america try shutting up for a while and not expressing every opinion and every thought that you have to your neighbors just shut the blank up for a while and see if everything doesn't cool off i promise that if elected i will i will barely you'll barely know i'm there so the out in Wyoming, the press saturation was high. Press saturation was high. Everywhere I would go, someone would say, oh, I saw, not everywhere I would go, but I've very often heard, oh, I saw so-and-so at the Four Seasons. Oh, I saw so-and-so. And then as I was driving through the town of Jackson, you see these, <laughs> you see these, you know, you're like, oh, I, uh, there's that guy. Oh, there's that guy. The press yeah, all of the, Washington. The press is relocated. descended, and the four, you know the you, the the four seasons yeah. was full because everybody was there. And here is just a, another inside baseball part of this: if this primary was taking place in in the inland the in the middle of Mississippi, I don't think it would have gotten the same amount of coverage. <laughs> but because it happened in August in one of the nicest places to be in the world in August. Not surprisingly that a lot of big said, you know, I really want to be on the ground. <laughs> I really want to be, I really want to be out there and really see it firsthand. By the way, we're going to need three rooms at the Four Seasons. Okay. Thanks very much. My take on Liz Cheney coverage is, you know, uh, Politico playbook, like every newsletter this morning is like, and she's starting a pack and da, 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 is, so sorry you lost, but it is the end. Oh, no. This is not the beginning. Well, I don't know how it ends, but this uh, is definitely not the end. I. It is the end. I, she will go on to do things, but they will be purely a product of elite media fascination and not a not have much actual impact on. I don't know. Politics, I don't know what will happen. You may be view. right. You may be wrong. But I can tell you this. A lot, a lot, a lot of people, most of them left of center, but a lot, a lot of people came to admire her a great deal through this process. And I don't know what that adds up to. I, people talk about the 2024 candidacy. I don't, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see how that works right now, unless it's part of some independent bid running with Joe Manchin or something. I don't know, but I got to say, 
Yeah, I don't think the Evan McMullen Mc- Eglish McMuffin uh, route is. Yeah, I would put is... I would put I would put Liz Cheney in a very different category than Eglish McMuffin McMullen, who's trying to now run as an independent in Utah and like his fourth. He he has turned into a gadfly, and he didn't have there was no reason for him to be famous other than Bill Crystal and some others said, "Hey, how about this guy?" and Liz Cheney has a famous name. She has had a really big stage and she did something that was hard and she'll be well known for a long time. I don't know how that will go, but I, it will be worth watching. Up next, we have oh, uh, back to the Mar-a-Lago. So here is a mediaite story. And I think I'm doing this just to say the name of the user, but the possibility that here's the headline. Did Trump's crackpot, the FBI planted evidence theory originate with Twitter user cat turd? And I don't know who Twitter user cat turd is, but the story, the story goes on to explain how this person who goes by the cat turd is a, a, apparently a force of nature. And that this guy has a lot of, this person has a lot of stroke on the right wing. And they, they go through and document how it ends up on Fox, how it ends up on like, and how this stuff goes through. I think some of this could be coincidence, but there's enough of it that you say, is it possible that the Trump team as they're, and, and some right wing outlets, as they're looking around for what, you know, <laughs> they're looking around for things that they're like, Hey, did you see what cat turd posted? I don't know. And then we also have, and I feel pretty bad for old Brian Kilmeade on this one. He was filling in for Tucker Carlson and they had a doctored photo. How do we pronounce Maxwell's first name? You know, you knew, I can't, I can't remember. Gilane. 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 So somebody had doctored up this photo yeah. and they put it on Tucker Carlson while Kilmeade was hosting. I am going to give Kilmeade the benefit of the doubt that he did not know that or that it no, that's some that some producer put that together and put it in there and that he didn't know. And then later Kilmeade came out and posted to say that it was it was a joke and you know the not it was just it was it was satire, satire, I say. Like this is the, you know, the you're on the phone, it's tapped. Crank call, crank call. And it's, you know, be be careful, <laughs> be, be careful when you're filling in. And, you know, interestingly, I think if Tucker had been in and done that, it would have gotten less notice. But because Kilmeade is of a, a, a higher caliber or there's some higher expectation for him that that got more attention. So I feel bad for Kilmeade. No, Tucker also would have found a like funny and clever way. To well, I'm it. sure that he would. I'm sure he would have been meaner about it. He's a very mean person. And that's um, that's about. Oh, I go ahead. Well, speaking of Fox, the New York Times published a story the 13th. So what is that on Sunday about the defamation suit against Fox by Dominion proceeding? And this is a one point six billion dollar defamation suit. And the the part that I pulled from this piece, I'll read from it. This is a piece by Jeremy Peters in the Times that will link Dominion's one point six billion dollar case against Fox has been steadily progressing in Delaware's state court this summer, inching ever closer to trial. There have been no moves from either side toward a settlement, according to interviews with several people involved in the case. The two companies are deep into document discovery, combing through years of each other's emails and text messages and taking depositions. That was super interesting to me. I am surprised that Fox hasn't settled the case and 
also wondering what your take is on if this does go to trial and let's say at trial witnesses are called and everything comes out, you know, all of Fox knew that this was false. Like, I actually am not sure how damaging that is to Fox at this point. Well, I worked at Fox at the time related to this lawsuit, so I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about it. I sort of. I I'm I'm not sure. I think like people kind of know that everybody at Fox knew that this stuff was false. And like, I I think financially that number could be damaging, but I'm actually not sure how damaging that would be to them. But I am surprised that they haven't just like reached have, a settlement. And you have a real nihilism about you today. Your your message on each topic so far has been nothing matters. Nothing. No, none of this matters. All, we're 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 all living in a simulation. Well. Why? What else did uh, I say Liz that Cheney about? And well, no, I just think that's over. She lost. I think that's just being realistic. The the, the line between nihilism and realism so in today's America can get yeah, can get, yeah, can get porous it's sometimes. True. I want to say something um, great. Well, in I, other yeah, Fox I want to say news, something great yes, about yes, Fox News. Go ahead. Which is that they promoted Shannon Bream to replace finally as a permanent replacement for Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. Shannon is not only worthy of the position, but it is very nice to see uh, good guys win. And Shannon has toiled in the Augean stables of Fox for a long time. And they gave her a late show and then they made it a later show so they could put Greg Gutfeld on. And just like there, there was a lot that she had to work through and work under. And she kept a good attitude. She and she stayed true to herself through the process. So it's nice to see, it's nice to see her get this position. And she's a good interviewer. And that will be a good show. And I promise that a lot of people will go on that show. Because Republicans and Democrats, because they'll get a fair shake there. And I think she brings some of the spirit that Chris Wallace had to that, which is the questioning will be tough. But so, you know, the question will be tough, but it'll be fair. I also wanted to include from the Associated Press story about this as a side note, this correction on the story. This story has been edited to correct the title of Chris Wallace's interview show. It is who's talking to Chris Wallace rather than. Look who's talking to Chris Wallace. And I was reminded, I was reminded of the you're too young to remember this, but there was a terrible movie franchise that involved, I believe, John Travolta and Roseanne Barr playing talking baby, the talking babies of Kirstie Alley. I may have some of these individuals wrong. Maybe Bruce Willis was also involved, but it was. We're going to get like 15 emails about this being like, Chris is wrong. Truly one of the low watermarks of American culture. The look who's taught like it's a baby, but it talks. Can you believe this? It's a, it's a freaking talking baby over here. I can't believe this. So this is so the, the, the fact that it is imprinted deeply enough into the psyche that an Associated Press reporter tripped on that. I, I enjoy. Uh, next up, Axios sold for. $525 million, I think it was. Cookie, can you, Colin, is that correct? $525 million. And the reason that Colin, our producer, knows that is that he was on the ground when Axios started. So, Colin, we hope that you have become very, very rich and that you will be buying us muffins. We're not, from, don't quit. From here on out. Um, don't, all I all I say is don't quit. Uh, please don't please don't abandon. Did us. you just refer to him as? Uh, okay, I did have you just positive... refer to him as Cookie. Do you call yes. him Cookie? Yes, 
Well, I took the name from another friend of Colin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Cookie Chocola. Cookie. Oh, it, oh, you sound like uh, a guy you don't want to owe money to. I really like that. That's really excellent. I have like positive take on this, which is we've made so much fun of, of Axios and particularly they have this evening newsletter that's like do squats and own house plants. <laughs> and, you know, I can't remember what the one I read. Oh, my gosh. Rushing. The one last night was like, take multivitamins. And here's, you know, it was like Mike Allen saying, when I pack to go on a trip, I always pack my might yeah, multivitamin. Does. And, you know, here's the Here's why everyone should take vitamin E. Anyhow, somebody said to me, you know, you can make a ton of fun of them, but they are laughing all the way to the bank. And that was totally true. And I watched this video that they made about their smart brevity uh. format. And I, I thought to myself, wow, like the advice in this is actually quite similar to the advice that I dispense unsolicited to beacon reporters in terms of how to present information to people in like an audience friendly way now much easier dispensed than like taken then it's much easier easier said than done but you know it's it's pretty clever and impressive what well they i did, i so. I, 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 I certainly so hope take. that colin is just rich beyond his wildest dreams now yes, but also I'm, wants I'm to stay and and how much money was it five <laughs> Five twenty-five, <laughs> and they were and they were purchased. Mike can buy a lot and of they, and, they, and they were purchased by Cox, right? Okay, Cox, which is yes, yeah, which Cox is still newspapers and TV, right? Okay, yep. so on the one hand, that's a uh, that's a redonkulous amount of money to pay for Axios, but then again, the hill if the hill was worth a hundred million dollars, then I've lost all I've lost all connection to the value of things. But this seems like a preposterously large amount of money. But I assume that this is about the platforms that Axios has tried to build out because they're trying to go into local markets and they're trying to do things. So maybe Coxie's synergies here that they can do with their papers, they can do whatever and put it in. My complaint with Axios and, and their approach is certainly not keeping it clean and keeping it straightforward and keeping it punchy. News, especially local news, that's a good, a good way to be it. Just the facts component. What I lament with Axios, I'm sorry, Axios, is or was their dumb bullet point bold words where they have this template that is so insulting to readers. It is so, you know, the phrase be smart makes me never, ever want to read anything Axios ever, <laughs> ever does because it's like you're dumb, but now be smart. And it's so condescending and it's condescending to the reporters who write there and it's condescending to the people who read it. And they should use this opportunity to drop their paint by numbers, insulting bullet points. Do you object to just the be smart bullet point or do you object I, to bullet points? Bullet points inside a story are great. What Axios has come up with is a template. It's, you know, have you ever gone? No, not have you ever. You are well familiar with the Toast application and handheld device at restaurants that are very common now. So you yes, go in and yes. you say, hi, I want to get that. So like, as I'm trying to be less fat, I, you know, can I get this, but I need to not have that on it or can you do whatever? And the vacant stares that you get from people who are like, well, I can't, it's like idiocracy. I can't push. There's no button for that. And yeah, if there isn't a yeah. button for that, I can't do it. That's what their format is like. 
that you have these little repeating subheads and it's like, okay, does this go under be smart or does this go under, you know, and this hot key approach to it, give your reporters some credit that they can take the order and that the kitchen can prepare it, right? Like get, give them some credit here. If this really is a half a billion dollar okay. enterprise. I, I am totally pushing back on you. You have made the case against yourself, okay. which is that if you do not, I, I think the bullet points are fine. Bullet points are fine. Um, and I think, I think that they are consumer friendly and for the precise reason that when you tell a person, I want this, but this on the side, and they give you a blank stare, that is why you cannot, you have to systematize with bullet points because people are dumb. And most reporters are dumb and that having a like format, like bullet points, like the more decision making you can take out of the hands of like junior people and the more you can systematize like decision making, the more you can like make it easier and it's plug and play paint by numbers, as you said, the more you can like grow and build. Because actually, you know, smart people who have good judgment are very, very hard to come well, by. Well, we, we sure aren't going to get as, one, as many of them in the future if the way that we treat reporters and readers is like they are drooling idiots. And if what we say to people is, well, we can grow this, and the way we're going to grow it is by making it less thoughtful, less interesting, less whatever, and we're going to just tell you, okay, you're, you're, you're like working in an, in an Amazon center. Here comes the package, stuff it in here. <laughs> does this go into this bin or does it go into that bin? Because you've only got five possible bins here. And again, bullet pointing, fine. And as a matter of fact, if you were to just take the dumb words off, right? If you were to get rid of those words, the the cues that are in there, that's, I, I can understand how, if you're, let's use the restaurant analogy. If you're a restaurant that's trying to, deal with a labor shortage and, and people who are high on drugs all the time, and you're trying to find a way, this application can help you do the basics, right? It can help you do the basics. I totally understand it. But if you want to be great, right, and you want to do wonderful things and be a great restaurant that's interesting and in, does all these things, you've got to uh, let people learn. You've got to let people make mistakes. You've got to do this stuff. Uh, maybe Axios has struck upon uh, a thing that will finally allow AI to really come. Maybe this is the way that AI really comes in to commodity news. And this is the way forward uh, so that commodity news will do that. I, I, I try never to complain about technological change because why bother? But I have to say, we really need smart journalists. And I don't think readers are as dumb as no, you No, no. I don't think readers are dumb. I think that most reporters are not like capable of serving up information in a way that is friendly to readers like axios it, it's not that it, it's not that you're going to be great or not great it's that like there's only one jonathan swan who's going to be able to produce excellent material you know there's one jonathan swan and one josh crowshar everyone else is like fine but where do you, you know? get so but where do you, you get a jonathan swan who are going to be great Everyone else is like going to be where do you, fine but, and they're going to work. But where in do you get a swan? And where do you get a swan in the cross hour? Cross hour had to, he logged a lot of time. They're basically, they're basically, they have, but he logged a lot of time. I, and I don't know all about swan's background, but I know he's a really hardworking guy and he definitely paid his dues. But I, 
So you think like everyone That's else at Axios can become That's not that? not what I said at all. Okay. What I'm saying is you will have fewer excellent reporters if we dumb down reporting to fill in the blank and color by numbers. And if the way to get consumable news is a fast food approach, right? Follow the diagram. You're not going to create more swans and crotch hours. You're going to you're going to limit that. And look, these are trade-offs. And as I said, I don't I try not to complain about technology, but I will say if what we need uh, look, I want a world where there are ob obviously commodity news doesn't have to be complicated. I wish they would take the bold words out and the dumb cues, but I understand the utility of bullet points. And I understand, like, I don't think people used to complain about USA Today when they were starting with the infographic and all that stuff. I think it's fine, right? Commodity, getting the information out there, it's okay. Get it. You got to get it down where people can get at it, right? And that's okay. And people are busy and they don't have time to read, you know, 3000 word think pieces in the Atlantic. But you have to push reporters and chat. Your reporters are very lucky to be working for you because you're teaching them how to be a good reporter and a good writer. They're very lucky to have you as a boss because 20 years from now, they will still look back on the lessons that you taught them about how to be a writer and the fact that you didn't say, here are the five prompts that you're to follow. Sit here and drool into a cup and fill in. Well, I, part of my take on this is that one of the things I've learned managing is that in order to learn to be better, I think that you actually do need to know, like, the you kind of need a play by numbers starting out, which is why I've, like, come around a bit on the Axios format. And I see the, like, I see reporters who have no idea, like, what the elements of a story are. And I think they do actually need that guidance, which is why I've changed my take a bit on like what Axios is doing. I think that, yeah, you know, 20 years down the line, they don't, they, they don't need that, like for the people who are good, but when they're starting out and like for most people in a newsroom, they actually do need, need it. They're, well, I like don't think wheels. we're, I don't think we're that far apart. And I certainly take your point, but I think the best training wheels are, and this is comes to cost. And this is why the Axios model may be so appealing to Cox to the tune of a half a billion dollars is that it's easily, it, it is the toast app, right? This is the plug and play version, but the, but the yeah. best thing for journalists is attentive editing from strenuous, strenuous, yes. attentive editing. When I started out, I was writing and for the wheeling intelligencer, I was writing four or five stories a day and I was getting crushed. Margaret belts, <laughs> the dowager queen of the newsroom. If you were wrong, you heard it, right? You heard it echo off the ceiling. If you spelled it wrong, got it wrong, made a mistake, rah, you like it was like a klaxon horn going off, and I lived in fear of it. And that's the, that's the stuff that helps. Just I'd say for reporters, repetition, repetition. You got to just do the reps when you're in your twenties, early twenties. You just got to get someplace where they'll pay you to write, and then just get the reps. Up next, Chris. I have my favorite item. In well, this yours is better than mine. I, I didn't know about here. it. No, no, you're, no, no, you're no. You got to do with, yours. With, with no, you got to do yours. I'll do mine after. Yours uh, is better. No, you're, you set the stage with this Eric Wemple study that he wrote about on CNN and MSNBC taking a sharper left turn during the Trump presidency than than Fox made a right well, turn. I, I probably no, 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 no. I look, I, I find Wemple 
useful, interesting. He's one of the best things about the post. And he found <laughs> no, I know. I'm working praise. on it. I'm working on. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Here's the lead. Former CNN boss Jeff Zucker made waves at the outset of the Trump era by oh, hold on. It's giving me a terrible pop up. There, I hate you, Washington Post. By hiring commentators willing to defend the real estate mogul as he mounted his campaign for the presidency, the result was many embarrassing and awkward moments on and off the air. And here he's talking about the Jeffrey Lords and the and the other goofuses that they brought on to be like, actually, it's good when it's bad. Now it appears that Jeff, all the, the Jeffrey Lords and Scotty Nell Hughes of the world have grounds to argue that they actually deserve more airtime. According to a stu study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, both CNN and MSC rad swerved radically to the left between 2016 and 2021. Sharp cable news divergence opened up during the primetime hours. The study found, quote, Polarization was driven by all three channels, but there was a sharper turn to the left in 2016 among MSNBC and CNN than there was a turn to the right at Fox News, says one of the study's co-authors. And I know that it's like, duh, and that a lot of people uh, that, uh, no, for a lot of our listeners right of center, they will say, duh. And for a lot of listeners left of center, they will say, but Fox got so crazy. It got so crazy. I could take issue with some of the methodology of this, but I think it is really important for left of center America to understand how bad it got. Like Fox did not obviously cover itself in glory in the Trump years, but how bad it got on CNN and MSNBC and how addicted to rage revenue and addicted to Trump hate that they were. It was really distorting and really bad. So kudos I also think there was like a little bit more distance to travel. Like Fox started mm -hmm. as the right wing network and CNN, like, you know, they were left, but they were like not crazy. So there was more a bit more distance like on the scale for CNN and MSNBC to travel. And they went like all the way. So, yeah, they went real far left. And like the Delta or the, you know, whatever, the distance for Fox to travel to get to crazy was like not Yeah, that that's true. They were already crazy adjacent. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they right. were like, they were like the guy who shows up at the party and who's already pre-gamed a little bit. He's already a little limber. <laughs> <laughs> Throws back a couple of shots and the next I mean, thing you know. CNN and, and MSNBC definitely had two, but I mean, I think that like, I take a little issue with the the point about Scotty Nell Hughes uh, and whatever. Suspicious, like there there being on there, he was, but it's interesting because their being on the airwaves was like indicative of CNN adopting the Fox model, where like they were the Alan Combses right. of and then they dropped CNN, them in favor. Where yep. Fox would be like, let's take the stupidest liberal model, or, you know, let's take the Fox would say, let's take the stupidest liberal and just have Sean Hannity beat the crap out of him or like a weak liberal. And CNN was, you know, they didn't have intelligent conservatives on. They have like not great spokesmen for the right. And they let their, you know, dummy partisan hosts just beat well, the crap out of them. And they're like, hopefully that's worth it to you for, you know, $100,000 a year. And then they stopped doing that. You know, and then they stopped doing that. And they, and they did what Fox yeah, totally. does, which is they, they just got the Anna Navarro's sort of the self-loathing Republicans to come on and then you say, hey, Democrat, are the Republicans terrible? They're very terrible. They're the worst ever. A Republican, what do you say? I agree. We're, we're actually the worst. It's like even Republicans, this is the Jen Rubin, Max Boot phenomenon so that you can get like, well, we had a balanced panel. Even, a, even this conservative said so. So that sort of false balance where Fox looks for 
Do you remember they had a guy who was Democrats for Trump? He was this young, he was a young guy, and he looked fly in his bow tie, but he was like Democrat, <laughs> like Democrats for Trump. And you're like, wait no. a minute, are you a Democrat, sir? Not okay. Can you say anything good about the Democratic Party? No. Okay, got it. And the self-loathing Republican slash self-loathing Democrat vibe is bad. That's why I applaud Chris Licht and CNN. My my homie Jonah Goldberg is not in that model. I hope there are others coming like him who believe what they say and say what they believe. Is he actually going on? I- I have the CNN on right now, actually. I have yet to see him on, but I, I know curious. he does, like, is he, but is he on the I, air? I will admit one of the weaknesses that I have in bringing America this podcast each week is that I don't watch a lot of TV and I definitely don't watch much TV news. Well, I have it on right now. Um, well, we need a Goldberg and... alert. We need anyway. please, please yeah, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Is that correct? Wretches at nebulouspodcast.com with any Goldberg sightings, not Jeffrey, only Jonah, to let us know frequency among CNN viewers. Well, speaking of Jeffrey's, our other CNN news item this week is a tweet from Jeffrey Cuban. The tweet was, friends, (laughs) I've decided that after 20 years, I'm leaving at CNN after my vacation. Was great to spend my last day on air with pals Wolf, Anderson, and Don. Love all my former colleagues. Watch for my next book about the Oklahoma City bombing coming in 2023 from at Simon and Schuster. Chris, I actually asked around a little bit and I I couldn't dig up the backstory on this. I, I'm assuming this wasn't voluntary, given that the guy had like the the stones to show his face on the air after his. Oh, um, you mean intentional? Do you do you Zoom mean accidental session? public masturbation? You're going to make a big deal out of that. Yes. I mean, come on, who who among us, Eliana, hasn't hasn't uh, hasn't blown off so, a little steam during a Zoom call? I mean, geez, Louise, very prudish of so you. So I'm just assuming. I'm just assuming this was a Chris licked scalp but i must say that i have not verified that is that is that i don't know but there is a phenomenon about when you defend an indefensible person like jeffrey tubin who is just as bad in his analysis as he has conducted himself in his public life is boring hackneyed i mean i i hate to pile on but this guy has been has has been atrocious throughout his career and the thing is that when you so I don't want to get into all the Jeff or the the Greenfield stuff and the the paternity case and just all all of the rottenness, but Chris is I now that you mention it, Chris is just referring to the child he fathered out of wedlock with and his then friend's daughter. Of with his yeah, friend. Anyway, anyway, the once you start defending indefensible people, and this goes to my previous comments about Trump and Clinton, you when you start defending indefensible people or indefensible conduct, all people are defensible and have value, but indefensible conduct that you get, once you get far enough in, the sunk cost fallacy applies. And I think the way that Tubin survived at CNN for so long was that once you've defended him or stuck with him through enough rotten stuff, the next rotten thing, you've already got all the sunk cost in the guy. Are you going to then say, oh, well, you know what? Actually, never mind. <laughs> Actually, just dump this guy. So that's how camels camels backs get stronger when they're used to carrying a heavy load and when you look at people like how does this person persist in public life how does this keep going it's because their supporters and defenders have gotten strong backs carrying that load around so no single straw is going to break it 
We have a climate files bucket here. This is this is if CNN is my passion, CNN coverage is my passion. Climate files, I think. Is well, yours, Chris. I do. I do laugh. I do laugh. You know, my favorite is the and I talk about this in the book Broken News available everywhere on the 23rd of August. We're right around the corner. Buy two copies in case you wear out your first one. But it's a, but it will be available in great bookstores and book selling kiosks everywhere on the 23rd of August. But the Washington Post has the partnership with Rolex to cover the climate is one of my favorite things where it's like the world's going to end. What better way to keep track of it than on a Submariner or an Oyster Perpetual? But so here is the deadly lightning strike in, and this was a, were you in town for this lightning storm? Yes. And actually we had all this, we had this water damage in our, in our house and it was like horrible getting it all taken care of. But then this storm came and I was just so happy in our like newly repaired house that I was like, rain, rain, baby, rain. We're totally. The unfortunately named Gloria Dickey wrote this piece for Reuters, for Reuters, Washington DC lightning strike that killed three offers climate warning. Now, I don't know where, I don't know how how long after because i don't remember exactly when this happened this killed three people right this killed three people and i assume that these were that these were not these these were maybe people who didn't have someplace else to be other than out in the middle of lafayette park during a horrifyingly big like any person could see it coming it was a scary 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 moment that you would take the deaths of these three living humans and use them as a tool to talk about climate change. Again, it's not like there's a, 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 a deficiency in the amount of climate change coverage that you would have to utilize in very short. It was, it was soon. At, it was not a long time after that. These three people tragically died, that this is already being turned into fodder for the giant climate industrial complex and like poor form. Let you know, there people died in tragedies before we started talking about climate change. People will continue to die, and life is life. Life is full of hardships. This was a cheap shot, and this was this was way below the belt. You've got another. Oh, this one it's is amazing. You can, Next you, up, it, it, headline: How a four-day work week could be better for the climate. Colon. Experts say potential benefits depend on a number of factors, including how people choose to say to spend the extra time off. Yeah, I'm going to take my day off and spend it at the cold let plant. Me ask you, let me ask you, sir, with your extra vac- extra weekend day, will you be planting trees or will or will you be yeah. racing ATVs in a protected wetland? Oh, quite so. This story, and of course it's from the Post, and the Post Climate's coverage is, at least the New York Times does news you can use. How will, is your is your child's elite summer camp ready for climate change? Whereas the Washington Post offers insights like this. You know, if people only worked four days instead of five days a week, there'd be less pollution. That would be good. And then somebody said, well, wait a minute. What if in their leisure time they do carbon producing activities and they don't stay home and worship Gaia? What if they're not, what if they're not staying at home and playing hacky sack with a zero carbon hacky sack ball? What, what about that? Oh, this could be bad. And it's so stupid because, you know what would be even less carbon producing than a four-day work week? A three-day work week. Now that I think about it, maybe a zero-day work week would be the lowest carbon emitter at all. And I don't want to be 
I don't want to be too preachy here because I've already done too much of that talking about this. If you want to persuade Americans to be willing to make sacrifices in their lives for the sake of the climate, do not tell them stuff like this. <laughs> do not say, you know, if you were a little poorer, right, if you worked less and you didn't make as much money, it would be better for the planet because that's what they're saying underneath this, which is we're just a little too rich. And if we could dial that back a little bit, it would be better for the climate is the message underneath it. And it is and it is as insulting as an Axios be smart. OK, we are heading to our like a 32 okay. style section. Where we have a couple of items. One is actually a story that I've been following, which is about this journalism drama uh, taking place in okay. Aspen. And we had been following it at the Beacon, but the Times did a big piece about it. And let me sum it up for you and get your take. There's only one aspect I was really interested in, but basically... And we'll link the time story because it's interesting. There are two like little newspapers that cover Aspen. One is called the Aspen Times. And they covered the fact that a a guy of Russian nationality, a very wealthy man, but he lives in Switzerland and has renounced his Russian citizenship, bought a one acre parcel at the bot at the base of Aspen Mountain. It had previously sold for $10 million. The guy scooped this thing up for $76 million, I think. So he bought it for like way more than it had, it had sold just a few years earlier. And when they wrote about him, they referred to him as a Russian oligarch and suggested that he had ties to Putin. When in reality, he, you know, he lived in Sweden, I think. His name is Vladislav Doronin. Okay. Doronin. And he lived in Sweden. He had condemned Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So he sued them. And they were tied up in this lawsuit with him. And they ended up having to make changes to their copy. They they settled the lawsuit with him. And while they were embroiled in this litigation with him, they basically quashed coverage of mm -hmm. him, like internally. They were like, we're not going to cover the lawsuit. We're not going to cover him. And people started resigning from the paper and it created this huge scandal. I personally, you know, running like a little news outlet was like, I can kind of see how that would happen. Like you're, you know, you're in embroiled in a lawsuit with a very wealthy guy. Like you did make screw ups in your coverage. And this is like a very expensive thing that could potentially put you out of business. And anyhow, this became a big scandal that they were that they while they were embroiled in the lawsuit, they quashed coverage. People were resigning. It ended up with like politicians in Aspen telling the newspaper, you know, threatening the newspaper that if they didn't cover it, they were going to like, you know, put their notifications and whatever. However, the politicians use the newspaper elsewhere and issuing, you know, ultimatums to them. It's a big drama, but I'm kind of curious in your take on the newspaper's decision to, you know, not to cover their own issue. Well, I have I have some backstory on this just because the newspaper chain that owns this paper in Aspen is the newspaper chain. Yeah. So during this, they were they were purchased by a different outlet, Odd which is where I started. And. Yeah. And Ooh. they're based in my hometown of Wheeling, West Virginia. And Bob Nutting, who is the CEO of Ogden Newspapers. So I know the people involved. And so I want to <clears throat> I want to tread carefully here just to disclose my my biases as a as a hometown guy. I this this story, you know, 
if you're a small town newspaper, you are going to be naturally averse to covering controversy for a lot of reasons. One that you described, it can be very expensive and you're dealing with oftentimes young or inexperienced reporters who maybe haven't covered big stories before. And maybe you don't have a great editing core because these small town news outlets as they exist are usually pretty, pretty badly understaffed. That is something that chain newspapers like Ogden newspapers have a problem with, right? Their profit margins. I have to say, having having read this, this does not appear to be the case at this Aspen newspaper. These seem like adults. Uh, they're well, dealing with um, adults. I, my point is that, but but my, I take your my point, point is that yeah. editing and redundancies, eliminating these things is at, at scale is a is a revenue model for big newspaper chains. So anyway, the what the other reason that small town papers don't cover the news or often cover the news is the biggest story. So let's say. You live in a town where, in West Virginia, where the biggest employer is a big hospital. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding the hospital. And the hospital is owned by the local Catholic diocese. And it's embroiled in deep controversy. And there's all this stuff. How happy is your editor going to be when you walk in and say, Hey, I think I've got a big lead on this story that would be terrible for, <laughs> that would be terrible for the town's largest employer? And the politically connected members of the board and all of this stuff, you're going to be like, oh, sweet. Right. So, you know, you also don't you don't see a lot of stories in the local press about scams at car dealers. <laughs> you don't see a lot of stories about overpriced milk at the grocery store because those are those are people who not only are advertisers, but also if you're the editor, you're the publisher of a paper in the local market, you're sort of part of that group. That's your clack, and you're going to be inclined to protect them. So it's very hard to it's very hard to operate in this space, and it's it's it stinks, and I'm, I feel bad for them. Well, this was interesting. People should read the story. This was slightly different because it was a foreigner who had bought up this land at the base of Aspen Mountain. It was obviously a subject of interest to local Aspenites. But what I took issue with was these politicians like issuing ultimatums and demanding that the newspaper do this and that, which, you know, I it's like, don't don't tell them what to do well, and how to the, cover things. That is not their place. Well, why should, well, I mean, I don't know all the details here, but why shouldn't I do not think politicians should be telling only non-oligarchs. No, they shouldn't be telling politicians should not be telling the newspaper like how to cover things and what to cover and what not to cover. Like, you I know, think that's stay true. In your but lane. I also think that if you let if you let rich people throw their weight around, I, I don't know the details here, but, you know, I, I could see a scenario in which if and I'm, I'm not saying this is the case here at all. I don't know. But I could see a case where you had a, a really derelict newspaper that was not doing the right things. Because remember, legal advertisements are a big part of how newspapers make their living such as su such as they do in these straightened times. And saying, we don't think that you're up to snuff anymore and we're going to pull our legal ads. Then we could get into a larger discussion about how bad it was to have legal advertising as the backbone of newspapers. Because talk about dependencies, it makes you suck up to these politicians. So I certainly take your point, but I'm sure it's complicated. The final item, this is next to CNN. I think the fact checkers mm -hmm. are my obsession. But this this is great. You flagged this. An entire Reuters fact check on mm -hmm. satire, something that turned mm -hmm. out to be satire. Oh, fact check. Fact check. Go Fabricated op-ed. 
in the yes. Washington Post, on quote, canceling the midterms, close yeah. quote, created as satire. A fabricated headline attributed to the Washington Post opinion section was created as satire, but some users online appear to have been duped. The screenshot shows an alleged headline that read, reads, quote, opinion to save democracy, Biden must cancel the midterms. It is made to look as if authored by columnist Jennifer Rubin, though, to be fair, I can see the confusion with that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And carries the date of July exactly. 28th, 2022 at 107 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. While some readers responding to the screenshot question its authenticity, others seem to think it's real. Now, here's what I want to say. I I told you before that I don't think people are. People people are not allowed to be. I, I told you before, I don't think people are so dumb they need be smarts. But I got to say, if you can't figure out that satire, Reuters will not save you, right? It's not like it's not like you were duped by that. And then you're like, oh, but while I was reading Reuters, as I was going through my regular routine of reading Reuters fact checks, I saw this and aha, quite Quite so. I think I was I think I was wrongfully informed on my Aunt Gertrude's Facebook feed. Uh, thank you, Reuters. <laughs> OK, that's a wrap on our front page. Quite a front page. Um, yeah, that was epic. It is now time for our obsessions of the week. The stories that we could not get out of our heads. Chris, I got a good one. Lay it on me. And I actually want to pull up. I want to pull up to read the my former Politico colleague, Tara Palmieri, reports in Puck News. And I just want to pull up that the New York Times is on the verge of. I think it's right here. Okay, they're on the verge of hiring a reporter to cover right wing media. And I want to read the description. She writes. I'm told that they are close to announcing their hire for a job. The job description initially called for a candidate with a, quote, backbone to withstand aggressive blowback with the ability to, quote, build and maintain source relationships, even in adversarial situations, and, quote, report accurately, critically, and fairly on people with extremist views. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So this is who they want to cover right-wing media, but it is my obsession because it's like, you know, most of their media coverage, we just talked about the Jeremy Peters piece on Fox's lawsuit with Dominion. All your media reporters do anyway is cover right-wing media. You don't cover mainstream media, basically. Actually, Dylan Byers at Puck is pretty much the only person I read who covers mainstream media. We do it a bit at Beacon. But, like, there really is no scrutiny and actual reporting on mainstream media. Every one of these outlets, from the Daily Beast to Politico to the New York Times to the Washington Post, the last piece I read from the Post was a profile of Ron DeSantis's press secretary from their media guy, Christina Pushaw. Like, you guys all already cover right-wing media obsessively, and you don't cover, you know, yourselves and your colleagues, because that would make it awkward for you at the cocktail parties. But anyways, I wanted to link a beacon piece, because I joked with our satirist, Andrew Stiles. I'm like, Stiles, you know, let's use our proprietary Washington Free Beacon algorithm to give our readers a sneak peek at the finalist candidates for this position. And we have, like... He produced this wonderful list that includes Jeffrey Tubin, who's now looking for a job, Felicia Sanmez, who's also looking for a job, the guy who stabbed Salman Rushdie, 
because he's really good at, you know, critiquing individuals who hold extremist views. And, you know, there are many other candidates. So we're going to like that piece. I would only say <clears throat> that, that, that well, I certainly, you, you are, but while I certainly agree with you directionally on that, I will only point out that one of your favorite items this week was a New York Times media piece about a newspaper in Aspen, Colorado. I will only say that. There's good stuff in that was yeah exactly piece. there's there I think there I think there's directionally 100 percent the obsession with with Fox and the obsession with right wing media is far outweighs its place. And by the way, this that Aspen piece is not written by a media person. He's a national correspondent. So you right. know. well, but the I, I think there's a lot of good media coverage, but I think it is it is definitely skewed, and that that is a funny solicitation. I do not think. There is a lot of good media coverage. Obviously, there's ink stained wretches. What's your obsession? My, my obsession it. is with this story, and we've gone on quite long, so I'm going to I'm going to go through it. We'll link it in the show notes. It's from the Mississippi Free Press, and it was a while back, but one of our alert listeners shared it with me. Headline: UM University of Mississippi graduate suspected of killing Jay Lee in Oxford, Mississippi, appears in court comma, still no details by reporter Grace Marion for the Mississippi Free Press. So you read it and it's a weird story and you can't figure out what is going on because there is all of this detail about who this person is and their relationship to the university. And you're sort of like, I don't care. Why is this, why is all of this about what their life was like on campus? And it, it's it's jumbled and it doesn't make any sense. And then- you get to. They needed the Axios. They needed. Be well, no, smart. they just needed. They just needed better <laughs> ethics. Editor's note appended at the end of this very confusing story. Editor's note: Grace Marion attended the University of Mississippi alongside both Jimmy J. Lee and Sheldon Timothy Harrington Jr. So the victim and the suspect. She served on the 2022. Oxford Pride Week, because this is a gay, this is a story about there, there is a, a, a fear of there's like a gay rage or whatever. There, there, there is a, a gay narrative component in this. She served on the 2022 Oxford Pride Week planning committee and as the head editor at Missy Colon, LGBTQ plus literary magazine of the University of Mississippi in the 2021-22 school year. Marion photographed Lee at a Thursday, March 24th drag show, in addition to all other Code Pink performers that night. She graduated from the University of Mississippi in May 2022 in the same class as Harrington. Are you serious that there is no other reporter to cover a murder case than a person who needs that you have to have a, a disclosure that includes the phrase head editor at Missy colon LGBTQ plus literary magazine of the University of Mississippi. If 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 this person is so compromised that you need a hundred word editor's note at the end of your story, get another reporter, hire a stringer. Don't do this. And the reason that the story stinks is because she is all tangled up in it and her she it's it's. It's wrong to do. So to to the Aspen Times story, it is very hard to find good reporters. And it's very hard to find people who are willing to pay for good reporters. It's very hard. All of this is true. I understand. Local news. I got it. I get it. But just read this story. Re click through and read the story and think about 
the kind of we talk a lot about reporter the movement in journalism where people like what's her name at the Washington Post who said that she should be covering sexual assault should be covering Alicia sexual Sanders. assault stuff because she was a victim of sexual assault. And the advice to many journalists from places like, from voices at places like the Pointer Institute, that we should just be transparent in our biases. Well, you read this story, you go read this story in the Mississippi Free Press, and there is a great example of why we do not do that and why we do not put reporters who have emotional connections to stories to cover these stories. This is why we do not put people who are tangled up in the issue set and who have edited uniquely named niche magazines on topics to then cover those topics. This is not how we do it. And this is why we preserve the opinion, the appearance of objectivity for its own sake. Don't do that. All right. It is time for my favorite segment of the week, which is reader mail. And we have two subjects that readers wrote in about. First of all, two readers wrote us about this wonderful Wall Street Journal story about the police force at the D.C. Zoo. And the headline is, of course, the D.C. Zoo has its own police force. So does the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And I want to read a note from Jeff in D.C. And Jeff was my high school classmate. So I'm so pumped that he wrote. I actually just ran into him. And he says, this was just delightful. We've got one, a bit of real news about the proliferation of tiny police departments in DC, two funny animals, and three, a human protagonist in Sergeant Gaskins that you have to love. The latter is my favorite aspect of the story because it would have been so easy to do something mean and snarky. So that was wonderful. And then Nate writes, Nate from Rye, New York, writes, longtime listener, first time emailer. When I read the following journal story recently, I immediately thought of you all. It has the rare mix of insightful tidbits on the ground reporting and a sense of humor that is impossible to find in your average piece of journalism these days. It also covers one of my favorite truly random pet projects, keeping track of all the different police departments I see living here in D.C., this particular story dramatically expanded the list I keep in my iPhone notes. Anyways, thanks for all that you Act, do. Packed with detail. Huh. Packed with detail, I say. And then several listeners wrote about journalists turned novelists, my, which was it was I my think, plea. It was my my plea of back, two weeks Chris. ago. Yeah. that people would share. We I I had come up with a long list because I was inspired by the work of of actually just finding out that William Manchester had been like a reporter reporter for quite a while before he became a historian and a great historian indeed. And so I came up with my list. So I was curious what pe what others had. So what'd they have? So we got some great ones. Tom from Smithfield, North Carolina writes, William Winston Church Churchill leveraged a career as a war correspondent into something else. Ernie Pyle was a master of the reporter who turned his columns into engaging books. I wonder how many college courses have one of his books on the syllabus. Honorable mention goes to JFK. He made a stab at being a correspondent, but while recovering from a surgery, wrote Profiles in Courage. With our, with, and so, so did Arthur Schlesinger. Oh. <laughs> and then he writes, and then he writes, Retch on. on. I like that. That's point. very good. Well, those any any others? Yes, Kyle. We we have so many, okay. but I'm just going to read one more. Kyle from Columbus, Ohio, writes: Hi, Eliana and Chris. Chalk this story up to another useless story about things people said on the internet, and it is a story 
about Cracker Barrel facing blowback after adding impossible oh, sausage I love this to story. the menu. I actually saw this right. I know. It's awesome. So Kyle writes, I'm curious, what are your views on meat substitutes? In response to Chris's question about good authors who started in newsrooms, at the risk of getting labeled a lib, I'll submit Malcolm Gladwell for consideration. He started out at the Washington Post in the 80s and has had several books I've greatly enjoyed. Among other things, I think that journalism prepared to help him make uninteresting facts very interesting, which is something not every author does well. Thanks for combining forces for this podcast. I look forward uh, to it every week. Go ahead. Okay, first, meat well, substitute. I care more about that. So I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna take it out of order, or I'll take it and say agree on Malcolm Gladwell. And I really recommend his book, The Bomber Mafia, about the rise of precision bombing and the story of the Second World War and it's and Curtis LeMay. And it's just it's great. And it is, as old Bob Kelly would have told me, packed with detail. I think he learned how to pack it with detail, and it's really good and really interesting. As for meat substitutes. You are talking to a man who, on the the night before, had never gone in person to a Fogo de Chao, and the man children and I were looking for something to do. We had gone to, to practice a little golf, and what could we do for a fun dinner on a weeknight? And so we went to a Fogo de Chao, and I want to tell you, it got real. It got really real. The amount of meat juice that that was left on the table from just it was a it was a it was a beefy bacchanal that, that we we do they have oh the sides. sides are amazing I recommend it's a little chaotic oh, in really? there because it's 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 popping in okay. it's look if you're in DC it's very touristy but I went in I stood in that lobby and I was like well this is gonna not, gonna be no good I'm expecting a seven it was like a nine it was amazing and so much meat. And we all got the meat sweats. We all took it to the limit. I have no complaint about people who want to eat Soylent Green and meat replacements. That's fine. I I have dear friends who are vegetarians or pescatarians. The great Bill Salmon, a famous pescatarian, and at six foot seven, that's you got You got to eat a lot of you got to eat a lot of halibut to keep that going. So I I have no I have no hate for it. But you're asking the wrong guy because I am still in a slight meat haze from our endeavors of last evening. I am similarly positioned. I have nothing against meat substitutes, but I would never choose yeah, it. Yeah, have um, a piece of fish. Yeah, like they're fine, but I would, I would. Well, I would just have. Well, but I mean, like, if probably, you couldn't eat so... meat, I guess I can understand that. But I, I don't know. Whatever the the we will all be reading. Axios and eating impossible whoppers in the future that were all prepared by robots. So I guess it doesn't matter. Probably, probably. (laughs) That brings us to, and we have a lot more notes, I should say, that we didn't get to that were wonderful. So please keep writing us. Where Um, do they write us? Okay. Wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That brings us, Chris to your favorite time and that is when i am forced to say something nice but you will lead uh, by example so what is your well this one is easy week? you've probably already seen it but it is the premier which is canada is such an adorable country they call the governor of their province a premier the premier of ontario doug ford who is you may remember his brother rob ford who did win re-election after being caught smoking crack? I forget. But the larger-than-life Rob Ford and his brother Doug Ford swallowing a bee 
during a live news conference at what looks like the, the oh my ground, gosh, I have looks like seen the groundbreaking this. for an event in Canada. I assume it's a hockey stick factory or a, and I also of course love that everything has to be in two languages. But take a listen here to to how Rob Ford handles swallowing a bee during a press conference. It's coming from the health sector. <laughs> Holy Christ. What was that? I just swallowed a beat. Oh, my dude. Christ, I knew that little bugger. <laughs> you okay? I'm good. He's down here buzzing around right now. He has a lot of, he has a lot of real estate. Now, if that wasn't the clip, okay, this is going to be replayed over and over again. And that just made Colin DeMello's day. He's going to be laughing all the way back to the city. I've already tweeted it. Holy Christ, he's, he's wedged in my throat. Sorry, guys. Little bugger got away in there. Take a second. No, I'm okay. He's buzzing in there. So there you go. Short and sweet. I think I mentioned on the podcast that I really loved this New Yorker profile that Dexter Filkins did on Ron DeSantis. And so I was super pumped when I saw that Andrew Sullivan did like an over an hour long podcast with Dexter Filkins about the profile. And I absolutely loved it. I've been like recommending it to everybody. And I was so struck listening to this podcast about how and and it made me sad kind of too, how rare it is for a journalist who is like that, you know, to do what Dexter Filkins did and to be able to talk about the subject matter like he did to go out and cover an interesting subject without an ideological axe to grind, it just really jumped out at me because it was so interesting to hear him talk about DeSantis and to do so without what what didn't seem to me like without a partisan filter. And it was fascinating. I so enjoyed it. And I just wanted to play a clip here. He, He immersed himself in the material like a graduate student. And I mean, I, you know, I, the, the piece opens with an interview with Jay Bhattacharya, who's a, who's a, at Stanford University, who said, I was stunned. And, you know, DeSantis called him out of the blue one day at his home. He said, I was amazed. This guy had read everything. He was completely conversant in the science. And DeSantis, I think it's fair to say he, he figured out his own way really early and decided to go there and then stuck to it. And then on the other hand, he's like, saying basically screw you screw the scientists to hell with the elites fuck all of you and that's that plays into it plays for him politically to the same constituency that trump is going so, going for so it kind of like works for him in this strange way so so in a way it it's kind of perfect but it's you know a little a little disturbing but 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 then i think the kicker is you know we can say well maybe he got it all wrong i i don't think he did We'll link the, the the whole podcast for you guys, and I I recommend to listen. It was it was fantastic. I, I, I share your rec. I share that- I share your recommendation, and I think it wasn't just that it was not partisan. I thought what was particularly good about Filkins' piece and their conversation is that it wasn't really about Donald Trump. It was really about Ron DeSantis, whereas most political coverage of these things is like. Yes. But what about what Trump thinks about what they think about what Trump said? This was a story about Ron DeSantis. Oh, he. Totally. He spent an extraordinary amount of time 
you know, not with DeSantis, but learning yep. about him, figuring out where did he grow up? What is he like talking to people who knew him? Like he really put in the time trying to understand the subject matter. And I th- I thought the interview like really showed the payoff and and like how how much complexity and like interesting subject matter we're missing out on by the type of in the type of reporting that like mostly we're getting in the mainstream like elite outlets. Which Do you know what's is funny is this, that I almost um, which is yes, time consuming expensive. and takes and um, takes time. I, it's funny I almost picked for this week the previous Andrew Sullivan podcast Dishcast with Saurabh Amari, which which oh, was the that. most thoughtful, interesting. He really held him to account. He really did it, but he treated this is how argumentation this is how argumentation can go. Sullivan really sets a good standard for this stuff. Treats it, treated Amari with respect, but that respect included treating his points of view seriously and asking him serious questions. It was good. It was impressive. So, kudos to the Dishcast. I I really enjoyed that too. So, that is all the time that we have left for the news about the news. If you want, if you have a story that you want us to talk about, let us know. Email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Also, if you have a food <laughs> item that you want to get our opinions on, please write us. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.